dear listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Marie? Sup. How's it going? Sup, y'all? How's it going? Sup, y'all? You know what? It's going fine. I have zero complaints. Three-day weekend. What up? It's been, it's, Gotta love that. It's pretty wonderful. I'm not gonna lie. It's pretty good. It's pretty damn good. You know what's nice? Not really working. So, I'm all about, I love work. Don't get me wrong. I have a very, very strong work ethic. No, um, I do. I just, it's sort of like, I would like to, to, to have a life of leisure is what it's coming into my consciousness now. I'd like not to work. Yeah, it'd be pretty. I don't know how I'd make money, but, um, or support myself and or the family, but you know, it would be, it would be pretty great. It would be pretty great to not have to, it'd be, you know, what'd be cool is, I always I, we were talking about this a little bit before the show. It's like the dream of every person who does something creatively, I think, to one day do it as a job. And actually yes. be able to, you know, like support, I don't know, support like food and a house and stuff like that on this on yes. this thing you like the to do. The hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Yes. And it's kind of it's kind of yes. it's kind of funny because it's like, you know, yeah, that'd be that would be awesome. But then, you know, I wonder I wonder though if it if it's gonna happen where you know, like with bands where they they start doing it as a job and they're like, oh, I don't like it as a job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like they like and the muse leaves them and they're they're bitter. Right. Yeah. You know, like they, they liked they liked doing it back when it was, you know, them um, drinking beer and, you know, freaking out on stage and stuff. But they don't right. like it so much when they have to play, you know, Foxwoods um, for the check. You know, I, I so I kind of wonder I kind of wonder about that with podcasts. Like it doesn't seem like that's happened to. It doesn't seem like that's happened. A lot to of big, people we know. Yeah. No, it hasn't happened to big podcasters yeah. yet. So maybe, yeah. maybe there's something special about podcasting because you do it in your basement. I would just sort of like to have that option. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's work our way. Let's baby step our way up to that point. Up to the point where getting, we can become you know, jaded and hate it. Being sick, of jaded. Uh, you know, because it's like you could argue that I'm sort of jaded right now. You know, so it's like that might not change that much. That's okay. But like, you know, that would be, yeah, we could try that. And then we could be like, oh, you know what? Yeah, this is this is this is actually hard work. Let's this, just go back. This, to this is something. something. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this episode, we are going to finally finish off Silent Spring here. Part two. Rachel Carson. Silent or Spring. Silent or Spring. Redux. <laughs> Jake, roll the tape. Marie, you know what is not easy reading? Silent Spring. Or any of the any of the biographies on Rachel Carson. <laughs> They're they are all not not great. Not great, Marie. Why is that? So here's my question for you, because she is, I think, inherently an interesting person. She did something that was huge and significant and has lasting effects both culturally, politically, economically in a lot of ways. Um, in the sciences. So it should be interesting. And I would have to agree with you. Everything that's been that I tried to get into has just really been kind of a lot of I don't know. I don't know. They've taken a lot of the joy out of it. It's the way. it's the first time ever with a subject where like a hundred pages into a book, I'm like I, I've actually had to stop reading some biographies. I've had to stop reading them because it's just they're so dry. Honestly, I think part right. of that, Marie, is because she was huh. a government worker her entire career. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. 
I think a lot yeah. of a lot of maybe a lot and, and especially because so technically so Rachel Carson, for those that don't know, this is we released mm-hmm. a kind of a, a an in-between episode on the Chernobyl disaster and nuclear energy uh, generally because we thought it was kind of timely with, you know, uh, Putin releasing a secret having a secret nuclear disaster in Russia and then them picking up isotopes all over the place, which, by the way, Marie, oh, Putin, did you see Sorry. that? Did you see that they are they're claiming that uh, one of the uh, scientists got uh, cesium in his muscle tissue because he ate some radioactive Fukushima crabs was one of oh, their yeah. was one of their claims. And it's like, that's not I how that works. Do. That's not how that works. I Anyways, do. so. Rachel, Did they have to get the good dosimeter out of the vault. I don't know. I don't know maybe That's they my did. favorite. Oh, it's so good. My favorite line from Chernobyl. So good. The interesting thing with Rachel Carson, I think, really, is that she did she did keep her entire career in 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 government agencies in the USDA, mm-hmm. in the Fish and Wildlife Service. Before that. She, before it was part of the USDA, really is like an overall group. She never kind of strayed from her overall message, right? But she also, right. she also though, didn't have a particularly flashy life in terms of her upbringing and things. She had a lot of hardship. She had a lot of family stuff going on. And frankly, you know, she, I almost wonder too if part of the reason why we don't get a lot of good writing on her is because she didn't have a really public romantic life, which is unfortunate to think about because a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of scientists Mm -hmm. in their biographies, like we were talking about this when we first did Rachel Carson, or when we first started talking about this, you know, Schrodinger's biographies are all about how he was just like a, a pervert. You know what I mean? They're all like, and then Schrodinger laid down some pipe, you know, like he was not like, he's not a lot of scientists when they have good biographies, it's because they're kind of villains. They end up being really flawed humans that are interesting to read about because they have these these things that they do that just sucked. You know, Rachel Carson, on the other mm-hmm. hand, was like a good person the entire time. And all of her quotes are like, you know, oh, I love butterflies. And you know what I mean? It's none of it is like, you know, and I become yeah. death there. They, you know, yeah. she fought she for nature. Very grounded. Right. Yeah. Like she had this very strong connection with the natural world, even as a government worker. And I think that that was, it's hard to, I don't know. I think that that's, and I I think that there's also that she was a woman and there's just quote unquote, not a lot of interest in reading about women scientists for a long time. And I think they weren't considered, you know, scientists. And I also, and I also think honestly too, she led a life. We're gonna, as, as we go into this biography of her that we're going to do this episode and kind of the fallout from her book, Silent Spring, and then kind of what is that mm-hmm. meant for the, the modern day and how are we kind of forgetting some of the lessons of Rachel Carson today? Really, her she lived a life, and I don't know if you had the same feeling that I did reading these biographies and you know watching documentaries and whatever. She lived a life where she continuously made the safe. She made two really big, bold decisions, I'd say, in her life. Maybe three, mm-hmm. right? Three really mm-hmm. defining, bold decisions. The first one was switching from an English major to biology. During a time where biology mm-hmm. was considered women's work because it was a lesser science, quote unquote. 
she made a bold decision to publish Silent Spring, which yes. was a tremendous, uh, a tremendous kind of ripple in the pond. You know, it, it made a huge splash. It was a very important work. It's still an important work. And then two, I wonder if the other kind of final thing that she did was really living a life that was, and I think this might be part of why she's not really talked about today or maybe not today, but why those biographies never really materialized. She, it, it appears she was, she was either asexual or a lesbian. And I wonder how much that played into all of this too, that she wasn't talked about. Her personal life wasn't delved into. She was sort of, you know, not forgotten per se, but there isn't a tremendously there. The best book about her is written basically by her which is yeah. letters back and forth between uh, a, a romantic, you know, potential romantic. It's hard to, to pull apart what that relationship was, but with Dorothy Freeman. Mm -hmm. And it makes mm -hmm. me wonder if that's not also part of this whole thing that it's, she's, she's a marginalized voice from the beginning as a woman in the sciences. And then on top of that, having this relationship that comes out really after her death, that's kind of, you know, not what people expected at the time. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think there's something to um, I want to say sort of her erasure in especially like popular notions about uh, ecology and the environmental movement and how, you know, if you think about the environmental movement, especially when the environmental movement was. Um, I want to say getting more vocal um, even if you even if you go back to Kaczynski, right? Kaczynski would would write Earth First, or even Earth First took a lot of um, had a, sort of a symbiotic relationship with that sort of that sort of uh, character and that sort of um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for machismo almost in mm -hmm, some ways, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Which is I, I'm not saying that he was macho. I'm just saying that there was this definitive sort of um, aggression with that type of uh the that type of environmentalism that became sort of a lot more identified and a lot more of the face of it if you think about again it, popular environmentalists and environmental movements that you can that are easily identified and that are covered on the news not necessarily for the good reasons or not necessarily for um because they have more credence but it's like that's that's a big one and I don't think that that's that's not where she fit in. That's not who she was, and that's not that's not how she um, that's not how she measured herself. And but I would also argue that she is she is like one of the founding figures of the modern environmental movement. Oh, hundred percent. She's yeah, but but she doesn't get any kind of credit for it, or not not necessarily. But you, <laughs> but you do science because you should deserve the credit, but. You know, it's also like a lot of the stuff that she wrote about and a lot of the stuff that she stood for are, are good principles that have a lot more of a balance to them than a lot more of the messaging that's out there now. Absolutely. I, w I wonder, too, actually, as, as you were saying that mm -hmm. another thing that's kind of another thing that's kind of come up in the writing of this episode or the thinking about this episode mm -hmm. is the question of can we really how, what, how do we define who is a scientist? Yes. Is, it, is 
Rachel Carson, a mm-hmm. a person who made her career writing about science, teaching the public about science, but never doing mm-hmm. lab work for any extended period, really. You know, she never completed a PhD, but she was working towards one. She did do uh, research that we're going to get into, but really her effect on the scientific world is limited in its scope to science communication to the public. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we can see it today yeah, how, how yeah. little we think, how little we think of the public's view of science or how, you know, scientists doing science, I don't think recognize how important it is that the public believe or trust in science. They don't think it matters that the public you know, gets their scientific information from a scientist as opposed to, you know, the history channel or, you know, entertainers or whatever. And in that way too, yeah. right. I mean, it's kind of something that we strive to be good at here is giving people good science from a really a scientific viewpoint, but you know, I, and fart jokes and fart jokes, <laughs> of course too. But you know, the, I think, I think the scientific community also, you know, it's kind of even me when I was first reading her book, I was like, Oh, she never did any science. That's that's interesting, you know? So is she a writer or a scientist? That's kind of how she viewed herself, mm-hmm. though, too. She she thought of herself almost as a as a science, again, like a, a science communicator, you know, which is an important role. I mean, we you don't have to go very far to find people who don't believe in science or don't believe right. in it, don't believe in some aspects of science, and right. and now to see its effects, right? I mean, you know. She was like an early whistleblower too, before that was a thing. something. Yeah, before yeah. that was even a thing. But she was like, I, I view it as like she saw something and was able to prove it and write about it and talk about what the problems were going to be on a on a human level too, that kind of helped I would say that that's one of the things that Silent Spring is it's it's also I don't want to say anecdotal, but it's story. It has more of a narrative to it. And so I think that that's the other thing that made people sort of stop and in a good way think about it and, and consider it. Because I think you're right. I think scientists have a hard time um, because what you're what you're establishing is fact based. Right. Yeah. It's not. And a lot of time it goes against common folk belief or something that we uh, general public hold dear as uh, as trusted knowledge and a lot of times it also points to the fact that we are the cause of our own problems yeah, sometimes yeah. You know, and that that's not a popular <laughs> nobody wants that nobody wants to hear that you know it's science big nag saying that yeah that i'm polluting or whatever it is right and i think that that's the hard thing that 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 prevents people from i don't know that present prevents some people or it becomes it's easier to be like it's 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 subjective, which really in a lot of ways, in most ways, science is not right. It's right. sort of like, well, that's just, you know, that's just somebody's opinion that this is happening. That's not the case. Yeah. And the, yeah. But it's sort of like eh, it's the case. And that's what's funny, case. what's those, funny is those lessons are very hard for humans to hear. And what's kind of funny, too, is Rachel Carson fought that in her life up yeah. until the point oh that, God. like, you know, she, to get to one of her. To get to your job in the day, you have to, like, you know, sweep the driveway of dead birds, you know, <laughs> and she's like, it's happening. They're killing birds. And you're like, maybe there's something to all this. Anyways, yeah, maybe, all right. I don't know. I'm not going to, you know, it could be something else. But I think that 
So that, and she was a woman, and the time frame, and she was saying something that was immensely unpopular, which was something that we created for the good of farming, DDT, right? Because yeah. this was something that was going to eliminate all of these other pests that had been a problem for us, and it was good for humanity, wasn't. It's, I, it's again like uh, just not not a very not a very popular message, but it's like it has to that had to have come out, and I think that that was one of the big things that too. But uh, again, maybe she didn't get a lot of she didn't get a lot of fair writing about, um, or even like when you say about her and a significant other, I think it was hard for it may have been hard for people to view her in a humane light, even though the mm-hmm. writing she was doing was not from. Um, a strictly scientific doc, you know, doctor side of, of the equation. She was writing almost as a journalist or almost as a government employee, but it was very hard to humanize what she was telling us. And well, I think, it's part, yeah, it's part that, of it's part of the characterization of her, right? She's yeah, this. Yeah. Here's this. Uh, you know, at the time, again, this is not this is not the views of the Mad Scientist podcast. Here's no. this. You know, there's this march towards progress. We're getting rid of pests. Right. We're producing right. we're producing uh crops at a rate we've never been able to before right you know prices are yeah, lower than they've ever been solved. and there's yeah. this and there's this this spinster woman standing mm-hmm. in the way of progress telling right. us what Saying we can't do very unpopular right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. wagging wagging that, her finger yeah. at us yeah and um, i think that 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 uh social moray is sort of the thing that is that also um, you know, but they didn't want to humanize her. So I think a lot of the a lot of the writing about her is almost sort of antiseptic in that way. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Listeners, if you're a writer, please write a better biography of Rachel Carson. All right. Man. Um we, so all right. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So Rachel Carson, Rachel A. Carson, she's born May 27th, 1907. Um, she was born on a family on her family's farm in Springdale, Pennsylvania. It's right up uh, right up the Allegheny River from Pittsburgh. Uh, her parents were Maria Frazier McLean and Robert Warden Carson. Uh, the father, Robert, was an insurance salesman and also kind of a small-time, um, I guess you could say, investor in properties. But the farm that he bought was essentially like a rock farm that you know was, was worthless land. And it would only get more worthless yeah. as the years progressed because yes. Pittsburgh became kind of a center of industrialization and pollution and things. So the natural beauty that the area would have once been known for, um, you know, was sort of decayed by the time they had yes. to get rid of it. The mother and we're heading into the Great Depression. Right. Yeah. So his his uh, anyways, his businesses yeah. failed. He would have a, he would struggle his entire life to care for his family. Um, her mother was extremely intelligent, the dad, you know, and, and very close to Rachel. The uh, the mom would always say that, you know, she um, regretted that she was stuck at home. She regretted her domestic lifestyle in some ways, although she never, you know, she never expressly said to Rachel, like, I hate raising you. You suck. You know, she said, you know, she said that she had wished that she could have gone out and done studies and done nature uh, research in some mm-hmm. way. So when Rachel was a girl, her mother would always, uh, what's the word? Oh, you know, take her on nature hikes, show her birds, yeah. they'd go bird watching, they'd yeah. go you know, looking for trees. 
she also now Rachel also had two siblings and the siblings kind of sucked. The uh, the older sister um, was always getting, you know, always in trouble, uh, married extremely young and had her first husband within like the first year of their marriage. While Rachel, while Rachel was still in high school, the mother or the sister's husband would just disappear completely. He'd leave them. Mm-hmm. He'd leave the family. Um, the sister, but then of course, you know, she remarried very quickly, um, couldn't get work, but very quickly, you know, was popping out kids. And so it was just a bad situation at the household, right? In that situation, the brother was, was far worse than the sister. The brother was a criminal, uh, kind of a petty criminal. He slept around a lot. Um, just kind of got around town, right? Making babies and stuff. Uh, so, you know, Rachel did not have a great upbringing. <laughs> She, no, they were, no. they were impoverished. Um, yes. you know, they did not have the money for her to go to good schools. She always, you know, had a tough, oh. tough childhood. Right? Yeah, she did. I mean, they did. So she, she went to an all right, like she attended a, a, a woman's college in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Right. And. Well, yeah, what's, what's interesting is, so what's interesting is, so she would start, she would actually start making money for her family at like age 10. So she started uh, publishing writing in what was known as St. Nicholas Magazine at the time. They had these, they had this, a special section, St. Nicholas Magazine, where you could, um, what's the word? You could basically submit articles if you were a reader to contest for them. And so uh, she, she submitted a couple of different pieces that were accepted. And so it kind of gave her the, the writing bug from a very early age. She really enjoyed yeah. it. And, you know. She had a gift for writing. She absolutely did. Most definitely. At a young age, too, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And so as a, as a young girl, her favorite writers were Beatrix Potter and Herman Melville. She absolutely loved stories about the ocean. It would be a, a major theme in her life, um, you know. And uh, especially important to her upbringing as a, as a biologist were books by yeah. Anna Comstock who is herself a fascinating female scientist um, who's extremely deserving of her own episode. But essentially she created a series of textbooks and kind of field pamphlets that mothers at home could use to teach their children about the natural world around them. Um, Comstock and even Carson herself had a bit of a religious bent to this all. Um, It was about, you know, we were supposed to be stewards of nature. God made us the Mm -hmm. stewards of the Garden of Eden. And so we are supposed to... Uh, you know, take care of it, right? We only have one planet, essentially. So anyways, she graduates top of her high school class in 1925 and starts going to what's known at that point as Pennsylvania College for Women, or PCW. Today it is Chatham University. Um, Initially, she was an English major because, again, she loved writing, but very quickly Mm -hmm. transferred to biology because of the mentorship of a a strong uh, female teacher she had, Mary Scott Mm -hmm. Skinkler. Uh, so Mary Scott Skinkler was the head of the biology department, had an MA in zoology. She would eventually leave to pursue her own PhD um, and grew extremely close to Rachel. So close, in fact, that when Skinkler left to get her PhD, uh, Rachel also tried to leave to follow her. Um, it's the story is going to be filled with extremely strong female figures in Rachel Carson's life. Um of which there was only a few, because there was probably only a very few scientists. Like, that's what I think is yeah. sort of interesting is, like, this this mentor who was the biology professor sees something and takes an interest in 
another woman who is again like marine biologist was not a career was not a career heavily no and they dominated by women and she and, and she was always yeah. skinkler was constantly yeah. fighting with the head of pcw to make biology a real class for the students the, oh the prof, God, you know the head crazy. of the university thought mm-hmm. women herself a woman the head of this university believed that women you know she to give you a sense of this kind of time period, still, right? This is the 1920s we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, this professor or this this head of the dean of the college would have social gatherings every week, like tea times, where the students would go and be taught how to appear as young ladies in society. You know, the goal of PCW at this time period was women would come make better young women exactly to yeah. make better mothers, to make better to make better, better wives. wives. Yeah, it was not to yes. make scientists. Yes. So, yes, it was not an education. And I think a lot of women's colleges were that was the bent. Right. Absolutely. Maybe the the best career would be like a teacher or a nurse or a secretary. Maybe. Right. That's like that's like the baseline edge. That's the baseline of a of a career path that you could get coming out of a college at this time. Yeah. With some exceptions. Absolutely. Now, this especially a women's college, this whole this whole time that she's in college, she's paying for it by going into debt. You know, they're borrowing off the uh, she, they're borrowing off of their parents land. Um, they have mm-hmm. they've kind of subdivided it into lots that they're hoping they can rent out. But again, who the hell wants to rent out a lot like that? You know, there's no it, you can't be you can't farm on it, really. Um, it's not you know, it's it's not a, a what's the word? It's we're going into the depression. <laughs> Things yes. suck hard for everyone. Things are not. Yeah, <laughs> there's not a lot. There's not a lot to no, go. Unless your unless your last name is Gatsby, and even then things aren't going great. Yeah, Rockefeller. You know, if you're a Rockefeller, it's not. Yeah. You know, things aren't awesome right now. So, no. Rachel is is going into debt here. She's simultaneously though doing odd jobs, working in labs for money, just trying to make her way. And so, like we said, Mary Scott Skinkler will leave PCW, um, and then go on to get her or try to get her PhD. Before she leaves, she helps Rachel get a an internship at what's known as the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory, which is on um, on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, or, or rather uh, Nantucket. Whatever. It's in it's it's on mm-hmm. the Cape of Massachusetts. Woods Hole is a it, it's still an extremely uh, extremely important biological research station. It's one of the first places. There's there's other. It's modeled after a. a, a it's modeled after another facility in Europe, but essentially it is a place where at the time it was modeled in that way. But at the time it was really one of the few places where women could go and do serious scientific research. Um, and really one of the few places where you could do serious biological research as well. Up to this point, biology is thought of as again, kind of woman's work, right? Mm-hmm. We're just getting to the point where surgery is moving out of the dark ages Right, we talked about it in the history of surgery series. You know, we're mm-hmm. still just chopping off stuff when it gets sick. We, we don't know. You know, we don't know much, much more than that at this point. We're getting better, but it's still extremely early on. Uh, the The study of physiology, the study of anatomy, the study of other beings, um, evolution is still a, a very controversial subject in this time period. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of challenges here for the biological scientists to get up off the ground and really become something valuable for them. 
So Rachel applies to uh, get her PhD and is actually accepted right away um, at Johns Hopkins, which is where uh, Skinkler is. Yeah. However, yeah. Uh, Rachel can't possibly afford the tuition. Right. So, so she goes there for her master's. Yeah. So she so she gets a yeah she gets a full scholarship. Yeah, for her master's. But well, yeah, it's kind of a full scholarship. The first year is a full ride, but after that, they can't give her any more money, essentially. And so she sells them her land, <laughs> the family's lots, right? Oh, my. So oh she my. sells them to PCW. First, she she's she's essentially promised them to PCW, right? And mm-hmm. said, you can have these to sell or you can make the money off of them until they get, you know, until they go to you or whatever. That deal falls through and they just say, just give us the land in the, in the whole the whole way. Right. So Rachel's family is now just kind of following her around the family, uh, the father. um, Yes. This is especially to me. This is just like, so good God, you know, like when it rains, it pours. I couldn't in reading about this, like she's really the only one that's working in a lot of ways. She's the only one that's supporting and having an income and taking care of her entire family. So the father, the father kind of falls ill. And can't really yeah. find work in the first place anyways. They're not making any, any money off their land. And so the first year, um, what's the word? Her first year after, uh, you know, so she can't go that first year to Johns Hopkins to get her PhD in zoology because she doesn't have the money. However, um, they do eventually give her enough funding to go the year after she graduates from PCW. So she goes, but again, financial difficulties lead her to have to slow down. And so she becomes a part-time student only and instead to make some money is working part-time as an assistant in the lab of Raymond Pearl. Now with Raymond Pearl, they were working on genetics basically, um, mm-hmm. which, which had just been rediscovered. Um, the kind of uh, genetics works that were done in the medieval times, you know, on, on pea shoots and things like that, those had been forgotten up until this period, essentially where people started to realize, well, maybe, maybe this is important. What with, you know, Darwin talking about evolution, um, genetics started to become a really interesting field. So that's the kind of research he was working on. Now, this guy, Raymond Pearl is actually really interesting. He primarily brought statistics into biology. However, he was also a super strong eugenicist, like super into eugenics, which is kind of like, par for the course in uh, in biology in the 1920s, but it's interesting. Yes. So, okay. <laughs> Rachel obtains her master's degree in 1932 in zoology from Johns Hopkins. Um, her dissertation is about the development of the uh, kidney in fish, basically. So, yes. you know, it's, it's complicated. It's like how they develop is uh, as little, you know, like fetus fish, essentially kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, Catfish, right? She did it on catfish. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she did it on catfish primarily. Now, she gets out there with the master's degree. The reason she doesn't continue to a doctorate is because, again, they just don't have the damn money, you know? No. And at this point now, too, but it's the 1930s. She's got everyone in her family living with them. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, yeah. the 30s hit, the depression hits, the brother can't find work. Sometimes the brother is sleeping in a tent on their family's land while the rest of the house is filled because the sister has a bunch of kids. So it's Rachel, her mother, her sick father, the sister, two children the sister has, the brother and his kind of round 
you know, round robin of wives as they come and go. Um, and there's just not enough room in this house, right? And there's no money. So no. Rachel decides, okay, this is crazy. I'm the only person in my family that can make any money. I'm going to go find work. So she decides she's going to leave with a master's degree and try to find some kind of gainful employment if it's out there. At the same time, uh, Mary Scott Skinkler, who was getting her PhD, then had to stop, then kept going, then had to teach again to stop, you know, kind of the same story that Rachel had to face. Um, she has increasing health issues, um, which has stopped her PhD quest completely at this point. However, her and Rachel are still really close. They write constantly. They see each other a lot. And so uh, Miss Skinkler uh, basically suggests to Rachel, why doesn't she apply for the civil service? Right. Because Skinkler is working currently at that point at the USDA. So she says we need scientists. Um, they'll hire mm -hmm. women scientists. Take the civil service exam. At first, Rachel kind of doesn't think much of it. You know, she takes the exam, but there's no jobs, you know, whatever. Um, but then 1935, her father, Rachel's father, uh, dies. So now the heat is really on. This means Rachel gives up her dream of that doctorate degree completely, right? It's it's over at this point. She can't possibly get a PhD under these circumstances. Um, she has to become the sole breadwinner in the family. So um, the civil service exam on which she took, she outscored every single other applicant. Um, she becomes just the second per the second female in history to be hired by the civil government as a scientist. Yeah, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Yep. So today that would be part of the USDA, but at the time it was its own kind of area. All right. So she becomes a scientist for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, mm -hmm. But primarily her job is not really science. It is scientific writing. She's preparing scripts for radio shows about sea life. She's writing pamphlets and things for the public to consume about, you know, so at this point now it's the late thirties, early forties. Yes. Um, there's a world war going on. So there is rationing happening here. Um, there's just, I mean, not necessarily rationing in the United States so much, but there's just not as much stuff to go around. Right. Right. So she's and publishing really quick. What if I, I have to say like this early this early bout of writing, um, you know, for the for the fishing game must have must have been just so kind of kind of hard on her intelligence too, right? Because it's not like again that she's she's getting to do what she did in her in any of her other studies to that sort of to that degree or to that level of detail. They were saying I was reading on one of the things that she was you know responsible uh, for creating a series of seven minute radio programs about marine life. And they called them romance under the un, romance under the waters. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's Which is just so like, ah, uh, if, you know, as a scientist, I mean, again, like all you want to do is like study and take these things serious. And she had this, this, you know, this true love of the sea and, and instead she's got to make it sound like some schlocky, you know, some schlocky, uh, some schlocky telenovela. Well, what's funny, what's funny actually is that she, what, what she's especially known for at the, especially during this time period is that she expressly does not make it schlocky, 
right? She tries super hard to make, like, even with a title like Romance Under the Sea Wind, right? She tries Mm -hmm. super hard, like, you know, none of her sea and enemies are, like, you know, marrying each other or, you know, talking to each other and things like that. It's very grounded in reality, but it it does, yeah, it it has to have kind of a, what's the word, like a a poetic flair. No, yeah, I know. Yes, I know what you're saying. saying like, that she did this. I'm saying that the marketing team was like, no. "All right, sister, <laughs> we got to make it up. We got to pop this out. It's got to sing." Right. She fa- How about a little love, a little romance? And she's like, Ugh. "Yeah." She falls. She kind of falls into this job that's not really. Yeah, it's not. It's not, it's not the kind of heavy science she was hoping for. You know. No. Um, no. What's interesting though is that over time she will turn this into a serious position. You know, so at first, again, like she she gets hired kind of as a temporary worker. And then finally, after this romance under the waters comes out, it's so well received, actually, that um, her supervisor just hires her directly. Right. So amazing, because, again, one of two women. Absolutely. Yeah. So there are no other women. (laughs) No. So she's the yeah, she's the second woman ever hired by the Bureau of Fisheries. Um, and she's, she ends up working there for 15 years. At the same time, her other writing is going really well. So she kind of turned this in. She turns this into an interesting kind of career for herself where the government is paying her to do research on these pamphlets and things. And so she's producing, you know, kind of she's producing scientific, you know, works like white papers and research articles mm-hmm. and things for the Department of Fisheries. But at the same time, she is writing more poetic, uh, you know, kind of publicly consumable articles that she's selling to places like, say, Reader's Digest or, you know, newspapers or journals and things. Yeah. Yeah. So she kind of it's kind of a funny case of like, you know, uh, what's it like, you know, working by gaslight. Right. She's she's kind of she's got her day job and then she's kind of taking the day job and turning it into an at home job, too. So she's kind of getting two sources of income here off of the same ideas, which is great. You know, it's it, this is a good time for her generally. Yes. And at least her writing is being received. Absolutely. It's being read. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really amazing. So. um this is now when she really this this 15 years with the, with the Bureau of Fisheries is really the time period where she writes um, her most prolific works. She writes her books. So the first one under the sea wind is. Uh, so let's back up a second here. Mm-hmm. The year at this point now is, say, 1937. So 36 is when she gets hired by the Bureau of Fisheries in 37. Her sister dies, leaving the children to her. Um, and her mother. So, God. yeah. So now she not only, you know, she already was kind of feeding them. Right. But now the mm-hmm. sister's not even there to really do some of the house, you know, help. I guess. Yeah. Say, well, right? I mean, yeah, they, she was basically taking care of them all to begin with. And yeah. Now she's solely responsible for or not solely, but predominantly responsible for children. Yeah. It's 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 a rough it's a rough case, you know, yeah. Um. However, at the same time, her writing and her other her career is going phenomenally well. So, uh, you know, the Atlantic Monthly Magazine starts a series of her writings that's called The World of Waters. Um, That actually, interestingly enough, she originally wrote it for the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries as a pamphlet. And her boss said it was way too good for a government pamphlet. 
and she should turn it into a book. So this is awesome. Yeah. So she she finds an agent um, or rather through connections through her job. She ends up working with Simon and Schuster. And so they give her a they give her a book offer. So the book becomes Under the Sea Wind, which which gets really great reviews in the critical press. However, right after it's published, World War Two breaks out. <laughs> or, yep. or rather, rather, I should say, right after it's published, the United States gets involved in World War II. Yep. So the public's imagination has shifted from biology, as you can imagine, to, you know, war, you know, to, to yes. weapons. Survival. Weapons. Survival. Yes. So um, the book sells like garbage. Nobody wants it, you know. Um, and so... Everything that she writes at this point forward moves towards rationing, right? Moves towards mm-hmm. works where she's no longer just publishing stuff about, you know, this is how coral exists in the sea or this is how, you know, seabirds get, you know, help the environment around you and whatever. She's writing stuff about, you know, how tasty uh, shellfish is if caught at home because you're not allowed to buy any beef because the beef has to go over to fight Hitler. So. Yes. She's really like she's not having a great time at this point. Um, she can't find work as a scientist anywhere else, though, because, again, a female scientists were not really in demand. So, yes, she ends up getting uh, what's the word? She ends up kind of getting pigeonholed into this career. Um, and actually, in, in 1945, what's quite interesting is she wants to publish an article for the first time on what she is calling a weapon of mass insect destruction. She's, she's likening this drug or this chemical, I should say to the atomic bombs, but for another species. And that weapon is DDT. Mm -hmm. However, at the time, uh, her, her bosses say it's, it's not going to sell, you know, no one wants to read about that kind of stuff right now. So let's just not worry about it. We're just going to push it forward. And so she does. She kind of leaves it in the back burner. She publishes another book. Um, the book is called The Sea Around Us in 1951, followed closely by The Edge of the Sea in 55. Um, but it's not until 1962 that she really starts to become concerned with the harmful effects of DDT and other pesticides on the natural environment. And the way that she really starts to see this is in the fact that at the Department of Fisheries, they are noticing that fish species are just getting decimated in various places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so this is so fascinating. It's like, even though she was pigeonholed into this career, it's also the one place that she is going to see the, the first sort of the first measurable results of what's happening. So she's, with, yeah, with she's, DDT. it's amazing, right? So she's, she's really, looking at this point into with her job, right? They're writing these big proposals about spraying pesticides, right? Getting rid of fire ants, getting rid of uh, of different moth species, getting rid of, you know, bull weevils and whatever. And so these, these plans are just kind of going through the process, right? No one seems to be paying attention to the work that her departments um, that she's doing the writing for are putting out there to the scientific community that are showing, you know, huge damage, Nobody out there seems to care at all that it's having a negative effect. Coming up 
on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. So it's it's challenging. You know, she doesn't really know what to do. And so she decides to write this book, Silent Spring. The one that was, you know, kind of poo-pooed earlier. Yes. So it's not being wouldn't be a big seller. Not gonna be a big seller. Nobody's gonna be a big care. Seller. Nobody wants nobody cares. Nobody cares about that now. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. So uh Really, the first thing that happened to this, the, the really the first thing that brought this out was a, a suit that was filed by people in Long Island um, asking that the spraying of DDT to eradicate fire ants in a program by the USDA be stopped because it is is having a negative effect on their land. It's, it's killing people. It's killing animals. Um, and the suit is thrown out, you know, um, or the suit is lost, rather. So uh, in that process, though, the Supreme Court grants people that they can have injunctions granted against environmental damage. So that is extremely important. It essentially lays the complete baseline for all further environmental action past that point. Mm. It allows the public for the first time to sue the government about the effect it's having on the environment, about negative effects the government's policies are having on the environment around them. Something that previously wasn't, just didn't happen, you know? The government, I I mean, really, the government had never really before in that kind of way, I guess, damaged the natural environment in the same, in the same way to, this is, essentially, this is the first time it's happened to white people. (laughs) <laughs> and, so, and so well, it's, it's, the white yes. people are like oh my god this is terrible um, well I would say yes this is the first time that you have sort of privilege being affected yes and it's it's being brought up in areas and in mediums that have a large audience to listen to it as well yeah right so I think that that's that's sort of the yeah it wasn't that it, this wasn't being you know decimating other populations previously, but I think you just hit it right on the hammer, but it's now hitting populations that are, that are privileged that, that, that dictate these types of, you know, have this type of communication out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing that, you know, how quickly things will happen when it starts happening to white people. (laughs) But it's, there's the history of the world, man, right there. It really is. In a nutshell. So it really is. uh, So, okay. At this point now, it's 1958. Carson is still um, working for the uh, government, you know, obviously. So, but she's following these, what's the word? She's following these changes. Um, She's following these effects that these sprains are having on the natural world around her. And frankly, she's following the works of her friends and colleagues who are noticing these changes. So, yes. 
often what's cited is the is kind of the the starting point, the jolt for Silent Spring is actually a letter sent to the Boston Herald by Olga Owens Huckins, who's one of Rachel's uh, friends actually at the time in 1958. So January 1958, Olga writes this writes a, a letter to the Boston Herald talking about the spraying of DDT and then the subsequent uh, death of, of thousands of thousands of birds in her local area. Mm-hmm. Uh, that letter is sent to Carson. Huckins herself sends it to Carson and Carson then really starts to take notice because this is no longer just uh, what's the word kind of, you know, government statistics saying something is happening and, you know, at this time, the government's still trying to kind of try to cover it up and things. This is a friend of Rachel's. So this really makes yes, and it's starting to get more press from other people, too. Absolutely. It's still starting to it's starting to come out. Yeah. So the the Audubon Natural Society starts to put out pamphlets and letters and things saying that they, uh, you know, Audubon, you know, bird watching and things. They're coming out saying that they they oppose this. Farmers are coming out and saying that they oppose it as well because it's it's not helping their crops enough to justify the death of their other farm animals. Um, and you know, it's, it's making a huge, it's making a huge effect. Now, as Carson is doing this kind of research, she finds that the scientific consensus is pretty much standard here. DDT is harmful. It is a poison. It is killing animals at a rate we've never done before and completely indiscriminately. And we really need to be worried about it. But the USDA is kind of just saying they don't believe it. Right. Right. So 59 rolls around and the USDA actually creates a propaganda film called Fire Ants on Trial that talks about how evil fire ants are and how great DDT is. Oh my god! It uh, it's it's completely hilarious. So the 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 thing it's you know it's it's exactly is like it you expect. Is still viewable? It is. Yeah, it's it's available oh still. God. It's exactly what you expect it to be, right? Um, it's saying you know oh fire ants a, a scourge on the a scourge on the natural world finally eradicated by human <laughs> <Fire> ingenuity. <ants. laughs> yeah, fire ants are your kids smoking them? It's you know it's craziness, right? Leads straight to juvenile delinquency. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you could you could marry that with Reefer Madness. That would be excellent. Just like the scare films of that period are so good. Yeah. So Ugh. what what ends up happening is Carson will take all of this information she's gathering from other people, all of the work she's getting from scientists, from wildlife uh, aficionados, you know, uh, bird watchers, sportsmen, just local people. And she compiles it into a book called Silent Spring, which is a really a great work of ecology. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably easier reading if you take it in 12 chunks like it was originally meant to be read um, yeah. or not really originally meant to be read, but it was originally serialized. I think it's yeah. a little bit easier to digest that way in these yeah. big chunks. However, it was originally in The New Yorker. right? Yes. Yeah. It's it's fascinating, though. Now, one of the most important sections in my mind is the section on what what should we do about pesticides? Or how can we both control insect populations while also not harming the public? And so you mean she, there's a choice? Yeah. <laughs> and so she says this, quote, 
No responsible person contends that insect-borne diseases should be ignored. The question that has now urgently presented itself is whether it is either wise or responsible to attack the problem by methods that are rapidly making it worse. The world has heard much of the triumphant war against disease through the control of insect vectors of infection, but it has heard little of the other side of the story. The defeats, the short-lived triumphs that now strongly support the alarming view that the insect enemy has actually been made stronger by our efforts. Even worse, we may have destroyed our very means of fighting. End quote. What they were finding was that actually, by spraying indiscriminately in this way, not only were they not killing enough of the target uh, organisms to make mm-hmm. a difference in their population, but they were actually also killing the natural predators that kept those populations at bay. So you can imagine, right? If you have a, a balance beam where on either side, maybe you have, you know, on the left-hand side, you got 50 pounds. And on the right-hand side, you got 75 pounds. If you take away everything on the left-hand side, right? What happens? Yep. The other side goes up. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's going to naturally accrue. It's going to start to kind of fill up. Um, and that's exactly what happens here, right? So, you know, an, an example of this that she, uh, an example of this that she gives is say, you know, uh, I don't know, some kind of like a mite or something that attacks corn, right? You spray for the mite and it kills the mites that are not resistant to the spray, right? So some population of that, of that insect will just be, you know, not affected. It won't hurt them, whatever. Right. Right. So, and and because insects breed so much more quickly than birds do, what ends up happening is you kill off a generation of birds with this spray while simultaneously killing all of the weak insects who aren't resistant to the spray in the first place or aren't, aren't susceptible rather they're resistant to the spray. Right. And by the time the bird population rebounds enough that it makes, you know, it it could possibly uh, overcome the bug population again and brings things into balance. Instead, what's happened is the insects have propagated maybe 20 to 30 generations. Right. And so now the bugs that are there currently are the ones that are the offspring that were resistant to the spray. So they're they've, becoming more resistant. They've they're almost becoming, yeah. they've yeah. almost created the perfect situation where the bugs they're you know, they're they're making them stronger. They're not you know they're making their populations better equipped to deal with these sprays in the first place. So then you just spray more. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So then they need to spray more. And so all that's happening, and this is happening in almost every single case, right? If you read Silent Spring, you'll find every single case of pesticide use wasn't, you know, these mass sprayings aren't useful. What seems to be useful is very intelligent, um, you know, spraying regimens. Targeting. Yeah, right. Yeah. Where, you know, for something like malaria, like exactly. we discussed last time, there is, there, there's, I don't want to say appropriate use for DDT, but there is more, there is more calculated understanding of usage in certain situations than you're just going to go out and you're just going to spray an entire field and then you're going to spray it again and then you're going to spray it again and you're going to spray it again. And you're not even really, you know, you're, you're to your point, you're tracking it by how much of 
the pest is dying or that you are perceived that the pest is dying until they come back stronger. And then you're like, oh, well, it worked for X amount of time. So it, we'll just double that. Well, what's 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 fascinating is right. Yeah, exactly. Like you're. In the book, she doesn't say they should ban pesticides. <laughs> you know, no. she just says we should no. we should be smarter about how we use them. We should just be thinking about what we do. Which is really what science says, right? I mean, in general, scientists don't say one way or the other on a lot of things. They say, this is what happens when you do this. This is what happens when you do that. We should consider these things. Not like we should never do this again, but we should consider these things when we do this. Or we should not consider these things when we do it. But it's like, ah, sorry, small diatribe there for a moment. But they're never saying, no, don't. What what really... Pub, what really the book sold fairly well at first, but yes. what really pushed it forward was it being serialized in the New York Times or in the New Yorker rather, and also mm-hmm. being selected as the book of the month um, for the New Yorker in October. Yes, yes. this this spread it everywhere. Um, it got it got yes. great reviews in the New York Times. It got uh, again. It was published in Audubon magazine. It was published in other places where uh, what's the word? it was published in places where people who may not have been looking for environmental, you know, may not have cared about this in the first place. Got it. Right. It, it, it was brought to, to care them. about it at the yeah. same time. Now, um, the scourge of thalidomide in the United kingdom, um, and, and throughout, um, what's the word? Um, mm-hmm. th- so thalidomide for those that don't know was a, as a, uh, it was a drug that was given to pregnant mothers and what it turned out was that giving it to them at a certain time frame in their pregnancy led to deformities in the in the child, right? They'd be born without limbs, um, <gasps> severely disabled. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but in the United States, it was blocked by Francis Oldman Kelsey, a FDA reviewer who said that it should not be used because the scientific literature did not support that it was safe. So this, this outbreak of thalidomide related um, disaster Mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom and Europe generally um, led to comparisons between Carson and Kelsey, right? These were two people who had stood up in the face of the government and in the face of the corporate lobbyists to say, this isn't safe. This isn't right. We should do something. Yes. Yes. And I would say too, that there was a lot of pushback from where, you know, again, from, from, the industries that were making money off of pesticides. Right. Well, so what, what ends up happening now is that Carson, the book, the, the publisher, right, the New Yorker, uh, Audubon Magazine, all these different people are uh, threatened with legal action by DuPont. Um, DuPont and then uh, Velsicol Chemical at the time mm-hmm. um, who mm-hmm. published. Uh, so DuPont made DDT and Velsicol made uh, chlordane and heptachlor two of the chlorinated hydrocarbons that are used. We talked about those in our first episode in this series. Um, They also just led, they also just tried really hard to, uh, what's the word? Discredit her. Discredit her, right? Yeah, just saying, you know, again, there's there's a quote from, um, there's a quote from a chemist who worked on DDT who says, quote, if men were to follow the teachings of Miss Carson, we would return to the dark ages and the insects and diseases and vermin would once again mm-hmm. inherit the earth, end quote. Um, or there was also one too that I love that was the chief spokesman for the insecticide industry said, questions Carson's experience, the major claims of Miss Rachel Carson's 
spoke at Silent Springs are gross distortions of the actual fact, completely unsupported by scientific, environmental evidence, and generally, and general practice, and general practice in the field. To which she said, "Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poison on the surface of the Earth with, without making it unfit for all life?" Which is like. <laughs> Yeah, that's a pretty good rebut. That's a, and then he re, and this was actually televised. This was um, because it created such a, uh, her book created such a stir. They had um, her on speaking with other, uh, with other scientists about it. Mostly, again, mostly sort of shills from the uh, from the insecticide uh, co- companies that said. And he says he fumes. Miss Carson maintains that the balance of nature is a major force in the survival of man, whereas a modern chemist, the modern biologist and scientist, believes that his man is steadily controlling nature. Which Carson is hilarious. Now, now, to these people, apparently the balance of nature was something that was repealed as soon as man came on the scene. Well, you might as well just assume that you could repeal the law of gravity. Well, and it's, it's a, I mean, it's a she view just smacks that- him back pretty hard every time. She does. Well, it's a, it's a view. It's a view that is still present, though, right? So we can't be controlling the climate. There's no way we can have an effect on the climate, right? We no, 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 no way. The the other thing that's really interesting here. So she actually she gets called out uh, specifically by the at the time the Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Taft Benson, um, mm-hmm. who said that she was probably a communist because she was unmarried <laughs> but physically attractive. <laughs> so therefore, that's what they say about all the sa- male scientists. Yeah, too, yeah. By the way, yeah. there's also yeah, that the, was that was big. There's also God. like like there's parodies of her, right? Uh, Monsanto publishes a book called uh, like oh, you know it's uh, Silent Spring. It's called like you know Death to Everything or some something like that. Whatever. Where it's like um, it's about uh, what's it? It's about you know the the world without pesticides. What would it be like? You know, right. it would it would lead to, you know, the death of everyone because we wouldn't have agriculture anymore and crap like that. It It's it's crazy. However, it's, again, it's so reactive. Too. Again, that's the thing that's yeah. instead of instead of looking and understanding. The credible nature of what she has, they immediately go to save, you know, save face in the bottom line on it, which is just and one of in, in, in one of the <laughs> I think one of the funniest examples of kind of the Streisand effect. All of the public backlash mm-hmm. by these chemical companies trying to, you know, make her seem like a crazy person and whatever, it only further boosted the public's interest in what she had to say. Yep. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, you don't hear about them. You don't you don't hear about it until someone says something. And the more people are talking about it, the more you just find out about it, you know? Yes. And by all means, like, say, they're crazy. They have nothing to say. Do not read them because that always works. Yeah. So what ends up happening then through all of that is, you know, the newspapers get a hold of it and they start asking the questions like, well, is this scientifically accurate? And time and time and again, every scientist they talk to says, yes, she's she's correct. This is really happening. On top of that, people in their homes are noticing changes. The birds aren't singing anymore. There's no birds to sing in some areas. You know, fishermen are going out there casting into streams that are that are. Full of dead fish. There's nothing left alive to catch. Uh, you know, trees are withering and dying. It's none of the positive yes, effects of pesticides are happening. Yeah, it just it keeps happening. And so this finally culminates in. Um, and again, this all happens over the course of like a year. All these kinds of mm-hmm. things. 
um, a, a CBS report comes out, a TV series comes out called The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson. It's aired on April 3rd, 1963. And what that's it, what I was quoting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what it what it does is it shows it's just Carson reading from Silent Spring, basically. And then kind of, you know, experts being called in and asking, well, what do you think about this? Or, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, is this backed up? And right. the people that come on from the side of pesticides are totally safe. Look effing crazy in it. You know, there's a quote here that's, I think, hilarious. It says, um, quote, um, in juxtaposition to the wild-eyed, loud-voiced Dr. Robert White Stevens in white lab coat, Carson appeared anything but the hysterical alarmist that her critics contended, end quote. Yeah. This, I mean... Yeah, this this <laughs> was like a talking heads, non-scientists, like spokesmen and, you know, like gone there to do this. And it's like, oh, no. Yeah, it's a it's a tremendous. Wow. What's the word? It's a tremendous failure uh, yes. for the anti silent spring crowd. It actually in further leads to uh, what's the word? It leads to the release of a pesticide report by the president's science advisory committee. And it also leads to her being called to uh, testify in front of uh, in front of that committee. Again, that that uh, that speaking engagement um, becomes extremely important. You know, it it totally, again, it vindicates her. It shows that the politicians are not paying attention. And again, that with also the scientific community supporting her and. Just this, you know, again, it's hard to argue that this stuff isn't happening when you can see it happening with your own eyes. You know, it's ex- it's exactly mm-hmm. it's exactly what's going to happen with with climate change. It's going to be yes. really hard to argue that climate change isn't happening with a fire raging in the, you know, in the, the woods behind your house, you know. Yes. Or in the Amazon. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's really yes. hard to claim it's not happening when, you know, the price of, of lobster is going up and, you know, uh, what's it? There's no more fish or there, there's yeah. significantly less yeah. fish to, to fish for and, you know, all these different things, right? It's it's going to be hard to make that case. So, And it's very unfortunate that, again, just like with Rachel Carson, that you couldn't start to science, – scientists and not so much scientists, but the companies that were making money off of – off of pesticides couldn't register this sooner, right? Couldn't acknowledge it sooner. So you don't have to be, it doesn't have to get to the point where it is like becomes every day, something that you are actually able to see every day. Cause by then a lot of it's already too late. If you're seeing the damages, you're seeing the, you know, the chickens come home to roost as the saying is. And that's, that's the unfortunate lesson that again, I don't think we've learned yet. No, not at all. Not at all. Now, unfortunately, unfortunately, throughout this time period, um, Rachel found out in, I want to say the early 60s, she finds out that she has breast cancer. Yes. Yes. And so um, in in April of 64, she ends up dying. She has a heart attack um, in her home in Silver Spring, Maryland. Yes. So. And she had cancer this entire time. I mean, just metastasizing and her fighting it her physical well-being sort of taken this toll but she i think the thing that was the most 
amazing about that is just her perseverance through all of this is that she still was vocal about about what she believed in even during this time when she physically did not feel good yeah. at all. No, it's it's wild, right? If you, again, you yeah. read you read about her writing here during this time period and the letters that she writes to friends and and family and whatever mm-hmm. are are, you know, about how tired she is, you know, and yeah. and how um yeah. Just how dreadfully she feels. So it's really it's a yeah. it's a testament all, to her. No one's listening to her. Right. <laughs> What's the word? It's a testament. It's a testament to her uh you know fortitude. heroism really. Yeah, yeah. fortitude, you know, yeah. whatever you want to call it, right? So um what what ends up happening, so Rachel Carson passes away. Before she dies, she is lauded as a as a hero of science. You know, she's given all kinds of awards and things. I mean not all kinds of there, her critics, the criticism against her and the propaganda campaign against her basically dies out within a year of the book's publication. Um, after that point, you know, she really is able to be instrumental in spreading that word around. But ultimately, the book itself, it's its kind of the first shot in the war to protect the environment. Uh, with, uh, with Silent Spring, with her uh, mm-hmm. testimony before the Science Committee, and then to the Senate and things um, comes the founding of what's known as the environmental defense fund in uh, 1967. It is founded. uh, What's the word? It's founded by uh, a number of people, but specifically it's founded by bird researchers who found that specifically the spraying of DDT to kill mosquitoes led to the uh, thinning of the walls of eggs for various birds Especially, uh, especially like raptors, so large birds. Um, this would then There's lead to mm. uh, this would lead to all kinds of unforeseen things, right? But a scent, but the biggest one of the biggest things is that without those predators out there to kill and eat smaller birds and other things and insects and whatever, um, again, what we talked about earlier, the population of bugs just skyrockets. Stuff got out of balance. So um, that research. Really comes about and is possible because of Silent Spring, because Silent Spring made it okay to start questioning these things. So um, that then the uh, Environmental Defense Fund eventually leads to the founding of the EPA, because the, you know, the EDF is a nonprofit group essentially that lobbies for environmental issues in the government. And so by the time Nixon becomes president in the seventies. Um, they have become successful enough and the public outcry is strong enough that the EPA is founded in the Nixon administration. Which is amazing. And since that time, really? and yeah. since that time we have done everything we can to tear it apart, Marie. Everything we can. Everything. I will say the, one, the one thing I did think was interesting too, is this other quote I found about her, which is before Carson got sick and even after and when she believed she might get better, she thought that she might take up for her next book, a subject that fascinated her. We are living in an age of rising seas, she wrote. In our own lifetime, we are witnessing a, startest, a startling alteration of climate. Right? <laughs> it's, it's So, yeah. right there, right there, she is, she is witnessing something and talking about something that we would be talking about what, 40 years later, 50 years later, as 
now being a significant problem that is being scientifically proven. But right there, she's already saying, yeah, good up on DDT. I'm glad we I'm glad we took about I'm glad we talked about this. This is the next thing that we have to look yeah, at. Yeah, this is right there. There's something else yeah, happening here that's a little bit there's worse. There's something else that, ha- you know, and it's just like, again, I, I, if nothing else comes out of this, uh, if nobody else even goes out and, and writes a better biography about her, you know, just learning about her interests and what she saw happening and how she went about it, I hope helps inspire um, you know, kids that are going into their science class now, kids that are looking at becoming uh, biology majors, the next the next group of doctors, the next group of scientists to help fortify themselves in sort of these people that were not traditionally known about and learned about maybe in the classroom. Absolutely. That are, you know, that are as important as anyone else out there. Now, <sighs> what's funny is... In we the can't book- have nice things. That's the reason. What's Here's fu- the reason. What's funny, <laughs> what's funny in the book, or I guess what's kind of interesting mm-hmm. in Silent Spring too is though... She was right about a lot of things, but some mm-hmm. of the things are also very clearly limited by the time frame that she was working in. So one of the things that she suggests that we do is import um, carefully, of course, but still import predators into the environment that will naturally Ooh. kill off pests. OK, so maybe not that. Yeah. And so in some cases that seemed to work really well in that time period. But in other cases, it's led to extreme problems, you know, um, it's like that Simpsons episode, right? Where, you know, they, they got to get rid of the snakes. So they <laughs> yes. import the weasels and then they got to get rid of the oh, weasels. Yeah. So they import the bears, and, you know, it just they get rid of the bears. So they have the lions, right? The yeah. Yes. yeah. It just, it, you know, That's it kind it, of what I can imagine. It doesn't lead to it good things. Um, now <sighs> what's really interesting is, you know, again, part of Rachel Carson's story, I think too, is, is her family life, you know, and her taking care of her family, her taking care of, you know, we didn't even talk about this, but she actually ended up adopting a kid, you know, uh, when she was later in life. Um, you know, she, uh, she was just a, a tremendous phenomenal person. Um, somebody I think that really deserves better treatment than she gets in some of her biographies. Agreed. Here, here. Crazy. Oh, <laughs> All right, Marie. And then uh, on that upbeat note. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. Thank you again to your listeners for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Still still holding to why we can't have nice things. Absolutely. Come on, people, let's start recognizing this stuff. Oh, my God. Bye. Bye. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at TeamGiantSquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, 
Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.